Hello, I'm Emily Grace, and welcome to the Stages podcast of Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Life throws lots of stuff at you. We're here to talk about it. Having helped families prioritize what makes money meaningful for them and then invest for that purpose for close to 20 years now, I've seen people through many markets and many life events. And while every market is different, what remains constant is the need for guidance and advice through all the uncertainty. I feel lucky to be able to help people navigate these markets and to be able to introduce them to some of the smartest investment minds and experts in other fields, whatever the stage in their life. If you or someone you know would like my advice or an introduction to one of my guests, you can reach me at emily.grace at bernstein.com. Today, I've invited Daisy Wademan Dowling, founder and CEO of WorkParent, to join me on stage. WorkParent is a training and consulting firm that provides advice to working parents and to the organizations that employ them. Daisy also created and continues to write the Harvard Business Review's column on working parenthood. In fact, the summer issue of Harvard Business Review includes a feature article by Daisy, and today we get a sneak peek. Daisy, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited that you're here. Now, there's a lot of talk about working parents and how they've evolved over the years, but is working parenthood really just a woman's thing? So that's a great question, and I think that's a notion that most of us have to one degree or another. So three years ago, when I set out to do this work full-time, uh, I had that notion in the back of my mind. I thought, well, this firm will really serve men and women, but it'll be more women. There'll be more appeal to that part of the population, and I couldn't be more wrong. Really? So when I write this column, online column, for the Harvard Business Review, and when I began posting articles, I thought, oh, most of the traffic or questions I get back from that, it, it'll all be women. People probably who have recently had children, who are really sort of in the thick of it. Who trying are to have it all. Trying to have it all, and for the first time. And to my surprise, about 65 to 70% of the outreach and the questions that I get are from men. Wow. And when you pull the lens back a little bit, it's easier to understand that. So just to put some numbers on it, there's 52 million Americans who are full-time working parents. So when you think about working parenthood as being an issue that belongs to any one demographic, it really doesn't. There's tremendous diversity. There's men, there's women, there's brand new parents, there's parents who are who have kids in high school or even a little bit older who are grappling with these challenges. And I think one thing that's uh, a lot of men feel, too, is that they want to be on-the-job dads, but unlike for some of their female counterparts, it's not always as easy to find advice, to find support. There aren't as many Facebook groups or websites. Um, it's not as socially sanctioned to pull aside not a mentor acceptable. exactly and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help? Uh, so the issue is there for everybody, and everybody is trying to find good answers. So what types of questions are they typically asking you when these when these men are emailing in? Yeah, so they ask all kinds of different questions, but the emails usually start with some sort of little disclaimer <laughs> about, you know, gee, I don't know, I might be the only one thinking about this, or, you know, I, am I unique or an outlier? And I, when I email back, and I, tr I do try and get back to people who ask me questions, I email back, I always start by reassuring people that it's not you, it's everybody, and there's a lot of you. Yes. Um, so first. And second, a lot of it is just around the practical things that every working parent is dealing with. How do I handle my schedule? Where yes. do I find the time? 
Um, how, when I'm under a lot of pressure, I want that next promotion, I'm traveling for work, how do I not let everything on the home front completely drop? And they're just really fi- trying to figure out how to square that circle. It's square that circle. I like that. I like that saying. Now, you, you write for the Harvard Business Review. I do. And you work with parents in that regard, but you also spend a lot of your time working with companies. I and do. And in the work that you're doing with companies, what sort of questions are they asking you when they, when they retain you, and what, what advice are you giving them? So, so I do two different things, really, for companies, or I'm hired by. Um, and the first is to do individual coaching for working parents. So I'm, I have 20 years of experience in human capital. I'm trained as an executive coach, and so I coach working parents on how to integrate, how to be successful at work and satisfied at home and integrate those two things. And will and the company hire you to work with the employee? Yes, yes. So I'm hired as part of a corporate program to then work with the individual employee. And then I also do a lot of training and workshops where I bring some of those lessons that might come out in coaching, but in more of a classroom setting. But every single first conversation I have with a, a company, whether that's a startup technology company or whether it's a great big professional services firm, centers around the same question, which is, but what can you really do? Isn't this just sort of an intractable problem? We've already established some good policies. We've got, you know, a longer maternity leave. How are we ever going to be able to move the needle? And that's really where things start. And if they don't start there, I try and preempt that part of the conversation by taking it there, because I think it's really top of mind. Right, to say, how can you actually make a difference? What's, What's feasible here? Yes. And, and what is your what is your service going to provide us? But also, is this something, is being a working parent and the problems and the challenges that it brings, are, are they essentially just intractable? Are they things that people have to sort of live with? And what's the answer to that? No, they, they aren't. Working parenthood is hard. And I'm, you know, I'm, I have two children who are five and seven. So I'm the first to raise my hand and say, this is not an easy thing to do. And I empathize with everybody who's raising kids and working full time or part time. But the one thing that I think companies can do and where my conversation with a lot of human resources people and company executives really centers is around figuring out how to take the policies and the programs they put in place, so the parental leaves, the flexibility programming, and figuring out how to really attach those policies and programs to people's day-to-day practices. Yes. So you can offer great programs, but unless people are using them in the right way or know they exist or have managers who are supportive of them using those programs and policies, then they don't have the same impact. And so I see my job as helping to bridge a gap between the intention of the company, which is to retain great talent and do what they can that's reasonable for working parents, and the working parents who are day-to-day trying to to hold this together. Exactly. I think that I've got friends who whose companies have uh, uh, paternity leave. Yes. And oftentimes, you know, they're saying, I get six months paternity leave, but... I can't take it. I can't take that. I can't be out for six months. And do companies really want the fathers to take that leave? So the the majority of companies I've dealt with on that particular issue are... um, frustrated, they're um, confused, and their intentions are all in the right place. They've probably gone, jumped through lots of hoops, really pushed to make this happen, and think, oh, this is great, we're going to offer parents, male or female, longer leaves and so forth. And then when they're either not taken, or they're taken, but the person's really working from home full time, as opposed to in the office, they're not taken in the way they were intended, then it doesn't feel like a win. 
So part of the challenge there then is helping figure out how to convince people who are on the ground who are eligible for these things that they can take them without having a career hit or that they can take them but they can use certain techniques and practices that will help them continue to be in touch with work, that will continue to help them advance at work exactly while they're on that leave. So a a lot of what I do and what I advise is incredibly specific uh, because it's about how people, not just whether or not to take the leave, but 8 a.m. the morning of, you know, the 11th day of your leave, what should you be doing? What should you be doing? So a lot of parents, working parents, whether it's on leave or um, working from home, working remotely, trying to gain flexibility, are really concerned about this problem of out of sight, out of mind. Yes. And that's real. Right. Missing bonuses. It, exactly, exactly. If I'm, if I'm working from home every Thursday, are people going to think I'm a, you know, a slacker, that I'm you know, not as engaged or not working hard as you know, somebody else? So in that really specific instance, one of the things I do is talk to people about the skills of using flexibility. So if you are going to be working from home, for example, make certain that you send a couple of emails at the time you would normally start working or preferably right before. So you send a tangible signal to people that I'm online, I'm available, I'm working, I'm engaged at the time that you would normally see me, see me physically. Then throughout the day, don't let yourself, and it's so tempting when you're at home and you can be a little more efficient, you don't have maybe, uh, you know, as many people people walking in, popping by, as many distractions. Don't just hunker down and get inside the document and sort of think, oh, four hours of just, you know, focus time. Make it a point to reach out, get in front of colleagues, call people, send communications that weren't solicited, send an update email to your boss about what you've been able to get done over the past week on that important project. Yes. Stay in front of people even while you're not physically in front of them. Right, so be, be there without being there. Exactly. Think a little bit about perception and how to manage it. And then that takes so much of that pressure of am I going to be you know, on my back foot because I have taken a, you know, a flexible arrangement, it's going to take a lot of that pressure off. Take that off. Do you find that it's different based upon the size of the company, that some of these things are easier to implement in a smaller company than a 20,000-person you know, company, or is that not the, not the driver? That's, that's a great question. I think it's sort of a dual-edged sword. So in smaller companies, flexibility is inherently easier in the sense that people sort of know you and they understand the, you know, the totality of what you're bringing to work. They see you working hard. There's a lot more visibility. So a lot of the sort of explaining and formality around flexibility doesn't have to be there because people are just sort of trusted more. They know each other better. On the flip side, in a large company, it can oftentimes be much easier to gain flexibility because it's so big, people aren't really keeping tabs on where you are, right? Okay, but they're uh, not, they don't see you all the time. Exactly, and so. exactly. And and I've had a lot of people say to me, and I, I think it's a really um, a great way to look at it, in larger companies, I'm on a flexible work arrangement and my colleagues don't even know it. Wow. Because they're so good at sort of creating and thinking about, you know, the perception that they're leaving and being diligent, responsive, et cetera, that a lot of people don't even know, oh, wait, what do you mean you're working from home two days a week or you're in New Jersey and the rest of us are here in the office in New York? I think I did. When I went on maternity leave, I've got uh, two kids, and I remember working through through the leave and sort of responding to emails and coming back into the office at the end. And somebody asked me, you know, one of my clients said, 
aren't you going on leave soon? <laughs> Bingo. Well done. Right? Say, you know you oh, succeeded. Oh, I'm just, I'm just back from leave. And they're like, but you were emailing me. Yeah. The, the flip side, though, the downside of that is, you know, maybe, maybe you did work a lot on leave. Uh, many times people will say to me, well, you know, I've carved out this time as off. It's a day I'm not supposed to be working, but I find myself online emailing. I, you know, I don't want to look as if I'm dropping the ball. Yes. So what do I do? And in that instance, we take a, a sort of a contrary strategy in a way. And I suggest to people that they time cap their work so that they literally sometimes I will ask my coaching clients to write a contract with themselves that if they have every other Friday off for example off not working from home but off that they will allow themselves to read and respond to emails between 9 a.m. and 9 45 a.m. And then again from 1 to one thirty or something like that. Yes. But that after that point they stop because otherwise it's, you know, you can become it's a, a victim of dribble. your own diligence. Yeah, exactly. It's a constant dribble. Now, are there particular points at which someone's more likely to feel the stress of working parenthood? Yes, there are many, many points, and those points are transition points. Okay. And I am using the word transition really broadly. So when people think about the strain of working parenthood, they typically think about that big leap when uh, mothers or fathers come back from leave, right? You've had the baby, and now or it's time to come, come back. Or don't come back, right? And now it's, now it's time to go back to work, and that you're right. That can be daunting. People can be really put off. They can. That's when many people do drop out of the workforce. Um, but they people think about that transition point. But in reality, there's a lot of transition points that are difficult. So having your second child or third child, uh, moving into a new role where all of a sudden you're going to be learning a new skill set, a new team, a new region, whatever it is, and also doing what you have to do at home. Um, even a transition that's as simple as being away on a business trip okay. and coming home. When you have been spending four days back-to-back in meetings, um, working very intensely, traveling, you know, seeing clients, whatever it is, and you come back home, a lot of that is probably still on, and the flight has been late, and, you know, you're (laughs) tired and jet-lagged, exactly, and you walk through the door to see your kids, a lot of people find themselves at sort of a, a difficult moment. They are delighted to be home. They're thrilled to see their kids. But that psychological and practical transition into parenting mode doesn't always go so easily. So a lot of the coaching work that I do is around helping people think through and think ahead and navigate ahead around those transitions. And that can be by planning them out, okay. by imagining where the sticky points are going to be, and then by actually practicing and rehearsing them. So if you are coming back from, you know, a business trip to London and you haven't seen your kids in a week, when you walk through the door, you don't have to have an entire script, but it can be great to think, what game or toy am I going to reach for first so that I can immediately get down on the ground and start playing with my small kids? Or, um, you know, what are we going to do for family dinner that Friday night when I get home? And likewise, when you go back from leave, uh, I really encourage every parent to take a rehearsal day back from leave. A rehearsal day. So instead of coming back from work, let's say you have to go back to work May 1st. Yes. On April 26th, you have an as-if day. You get up, you get dressed, you get the baby ready, you take the baby to daycare or do the nanny handover, you commute to work, 
And then as soon as you get to your office building, you stop, you grab yourself a Starbucks, and you turn <laughs> around and you head home. But what you've just done is put yourself through the, the reality of what you'll deal with as a working parent. And you'll see where some of the sticky points are and how your feelings may you know, go as you do the daycare drop-off, et cetera. And then the, the day of, knowing that you've already done it before and survived it, it feels a little more old hat. You've taken away the sting. feels a little less... Less intense. Exactly. Less intense. Are there things that companies can do to make the transitions easier, right? Whether it's, you know, knowing that employees starting into a new position or that they're going to be doing a lot of business travel or that they don't travel very often, but they're going to be traveling one time or. Yeah. So the, the number one thing that companies can do, I, I think, and it's funny because I, I, you know, I earn my living. I consult and advise to companies. But the number one thing, the most powerful thing they can really do is to connect their working parents to other working parents inside the organization. So I can advise and help somebody uh, to think about how they're going to return from leave. But I'm not an employee of that company. Yes. And I don't know some of the ins and outs and personalities as well as the person sitting in the office next door to them will. And if you can have an open conversation with another mother or father about how to handle the work travel requirements, about how to um, you know, announce it when you have to leave for a parent-teacher conference and how that's received in your particular organization, the more knowledge and what works here type of wisdom you can get from other people, the better off you're going to be. So I think connecting people formally and informally is the way forward for most organizations. So fascinating. I feel like you must have worked with Alliance Bernstein because we have uh, <laughs> we have ERGs, employee resource groups. So think affinity groups. Perfect. And one of them is a working parent or is a parents group. And you know, they have monthly lunches and then speakers that come in to yeah. talk about, you know, how do you find childcare? How do you navigate this situation, you know, adoption, how do you exactly. talk to your kids about XYZ? Who are just, yeah, will, willing to share stories and experiences. A, a lot of times companies will say to me, well, I, gee, I don't, you know, getting together an employee resource group, it you know, it feels formal, it takes a lot of time and attention and so forth. And I often remind people that these networks exist whether or not they're sanctioned. Every organization I've ever encountered has some sort of informal email chain of the working moms or a group of people who get together to swap tools and techniques or um, people who you know share information about the local um, child care availability, yes. that kind of thing. It's just recognizing that and trying to stoke it and foster it a bit. Right, trying to make it feel more more formal. M- more and sanctioned, more, more, more recognized. Sanctioned more sanctioned you know, the, the informal doesn't guarantee that everybody's included. The formal yes. makes it easier for you know somebody who might get left on the sideline yes. to really participate and feel like feel like they're part of it. Exactly. Now, if you are, I mean, you talked about these transitions into different different roles, but what about if you're thinking about you know either joining a new company or maybe you've stayed home with your children and now you're looking to transition back into the workforce, you know. How can you find out how family-friendly a company or a job is, obviously, before starting there? Yeah, so there, I think there are three powerful ways, um, powerful when they're used in combination. The first is just by researching the policies and programs a company has. Um, and that, that it, it's not that there's a right answer and a wrong answer around how long the parental leave should be or you know what the child care subsidy, if it exists, should look like. But just look and see, uh, and it's usually available on a company's external website, and if not, you can ask the HR person you're interviewing with, 
what's out there because it's it's basically a litmus test of has this organization really thought things through and are they trying to be proactive in helping working parents so get a see what the reaction is to that question and get a little bit of information there is it sorry to interrupt but is it okay to ask the hr person because so all the women i know looking try to hide their their kids when they're looking and so to me asking do you have a policy yeah most of them, I feel like, would would balk at that. Yeah, it's a sequencing question. So if you were to ask as the first question in a first-round interview, tell me about your family-friendly policies, that might not be the most constructive thing to do, right? It's because you're sending a message through the types of questions you ask. But if conversations have proceeded, you feel like you're getting close to an offer, it's going to be on your mind, certainly, as you think about taking that. It's also going to be on the organization's mind, right? Organizations know that it takes a lot to win great talent. And they're actually pretty eager to showcase things like training opportunities, flexibility opportunities, um, all the stuff that they are offering as an inducement to people taking offers. We're in a tight labor market now. (laughs) Exactly. So so I think you just want to wait until you're, you know, a few conversations down the road and then, uh, you know, down the process and ask the conversation, you know, the question fairly casually and just say, oh, you know, incidentally, uh, you know, as a working mother, I'm just curious about, you know, what you have. Um, Again, a lot of this information can also be um, found through your network. You can talk to other people um, at the company who you know, who you're not interviewing with, or, you know, find through some of the um, working mothers' message boards. (laughs) Glassdoor, exactly. So a lot of it is out there. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to look around for some tangible symbols when you get inside a company, when you get inside an organization. So. When you're there for your interviews? When you're there for your interviews. So if you go into a senior manager's office and you see, uh, or several of them, and you see not one shred of evidence that the person has a life outside their office, that um, is an interesting piece of information. It's not a conclusive piece of information, but it's interesting. If, on the other hand, you see a picture of the person's family and a picture of them, you know, out hiking, whatever, it at least signals to you that it's acceptable for that person to have that life and to show visibly their colleagues that they have that life outside of work. So it's another data point. The third thing I think that... um, people should do, and this really is more at the stage of offer or right before it, is to bring the question up front. Uh, And a simple way to do that when you're kind of getting down to talking about salary and what an offer could look like, et cetera, uh, and if if this really matters to you, is to say, um, you know, I'm going to be completely candid. Um, I, you know, I have three children who are under eight. I typically work, you know, very long hours. I'm completely dedicated to my job. I've, you know, achieved a lot in my career. Nevertheless, it's important to me to be an on-the-job dad. Yes. Um, And here's how I imagine my schedule. I would continue, you know, working, you know, roughly this, you know, these hours. Put whatever detail you want around it, but be upfront and then say, you know, if that is a deal breaker or if that doesn't work in the context of what you need from me, then, you know, we should maybe have a different, different conversation. Exactly. Uh, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, you, sh- you know, you should never do that. But in reality, do you want to take a job where you're it's only f- fail? Yeah. Or where you're only figuring those things out once you're already once you've cast your entire economic lot into it, uh, it would be much better to get that information up front. And it seems like what's changed in the last 30 years is that it, companies are more accepting of this and they understand that this matters and that 
yeah. that they have to pay attention. They understand that it matters, and I actually think it's gone in the past several years from a it matters to a code red type of priority for a lot of organizations. So everybody now is talking about the fact that what are we going to do about working parent talent? And the reason for it are some of the major shifts that we've had, even over the past dozen years. So 15 years ago, nobody had iPhones because they didn't exist. We didn't have smartphones. So you may have been, you may have had a BlackBerry or been, you know, attached to work in some way, but the era of incessant availability and always having to be responsive at all hours of the day and night hadn't really happened yet. And if you look back even further demographically, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, the, the composition of the quote-unquote typical American family was a little bit different. Having sole breadwinners was more common. Now it, the vast majority of people are either in single-parent households or in dual-career households. So working parenthood it doesn't feel harder. It actually is harder it than is it used to be. harder than it was yeah, 30 we're, years ago. Yeah, we're in a different era, and I think a lot of – not just the HR parts of organizations, but a lot of senior managers are saying, wait, we have to overcome this. Otherwise, we're not going to be competitive with talent. And that's why a lot of the Silicon Valley technology sort of younger skewing type industries and organizations have gotten onto the sort of um, working parent strategy bandwagon really hard and really fast um, because they're dealing with it with their population so much. Right, that is their populations coming up. Couldn't you have the other side of the coin, though, where they just say all companies are going to ignore it and therefore employees are just SOL? Or I mean, Yeah, and listen, I'm sure there's a lot of organizations, not typically ones I work with, but a lot of organizations who say – They wouldn't you know, hire you if yeah, they were ignoring exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, that would be a harder sell for me. Um, but a lot of organizations and, and, frankly, a lot of skeptical, you know, senior leaders who say, you know, I did it, it wasn't that hard, and, you know, sort of who cares – and that's certainly well within their right. I mean, it's you can run an organization in a lot of different ways, and yes. nobody's casting judgment here. But I'll go back to what I said at, at the beginning of our conversation, which is that then effectively takes you out of the running or puts you on your back foot in attracting 52 million Americans as potential employees. Because other companies are, in fact, making these options exactly. and thinking through this. So when you're knocking out roughly 50% of your talent pool as an option – and we're in a tight labor market, and you're in a competitive environment and industry, um, you're, you're really disadvantaging yourself if you don't at least give some attention to this. Yeah, and I think you talked a little bit about how working parenthood has changed over the last sort of 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. In one word, what's the future of working parenthood? So in, in the future, I would love to see of working parenthood, and that I'm really working towards the one-word answer there would be dignity. So when a lot of working parents today um, talk about their experiences, uh, they apologize. I, I'm so sorry I have to you know, leave the office because my daughter's the pediatrician. Or I feel bad because I'm not working as many hours as I used to before I had kids. Um, there is guilt. There's shame. There's worry. There's concern. There's a lot of hiding of the yeah. needs of being a working parent. And all of those things really um, take away from your ability to – just do your job um, and be sort of upfront with who you are and, you know, what you're doing. And, and to me, that's that's dignity. If people can, you know, be in an environment where they step forward and say, I am leaving now. My daughter is sick. I'm going to the pediatrician. Right. And I that, get my work done. 
and I get my work done. And that's a completely stress-free statement. To me, that will be success. I, I look forward to that, that world. I remember somebody saying early on that it's so important for senior leaders with kids to put their outside obligations on their calendar. Yes. So to put, you know, play recital or pediatrician's appointment or Absolutely. whatever it is so that the younger generation sees that it's possible to be successful and possible to be a senior leader who also has an outside world and that it's not hidden yes. from sight. Yeah, there's this great idea. I didn't coin this term, but I think it's a great one, um, of leaving loudly. So if you, you can put things on your calendar, but if you're the manager of a department and you're leaving to go to the, you know, your son's debate tournament or um, your daughter's field hockey game, get up and don't just scoot out of the office and get to the elevator bank as quickly as you can. Get up, lap the office and tell everybody, hey, guys, I'm going to my, you know, to this obligation or, to, you know, to my daughter's game. I'll be back at this time. See you. So you are using every single opportunity you can to normalize the experience of working parents while also sending a message that, I will be back online later yes. finishing off what I need to. I'd say our senior leaders are pretty good about that. You know, I think about the fact, I, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about some of the more senior people here who will talk about, you know, one of their sons plays for a minor league baseball team and he will go to games or he'll fly out and yeah. come back and he's very open. And it's really, it is heartening as another working parent to hear to hear this senior, very senior man talk in that way. Absolutely. And and that is worth, you know, many, many, many pages in the employee handbook of policy yes. around working parenthood, <laughs> right? One senior leader send it, setting that demonstrable example and setting that culture is going to be so much more powerful. Um, so that's uh, that's a really high leverage point for people who are, who are running and leading organizations. That's fantastic. Well, Daisy Wademan Dowling, founder and CEO of Work Parent, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I mean, it's it's clear that we've made great strides in this, but I love the way that you talk about sort of dignity being the goal for going forward. And I'm going to do my part here, here at Bernstein. Now, you've provided us with a lot of important information today, and information helps us to plan. At the end of the day, planning for all the stages in life is crucial. If you'd like to speak with me, you can reach me at emily.grace at bernstein.com. And if you're interested in learning more about Daisy and WorkParent, you can visit www.workparent.com. And you can look forward to seeing Daisy's feature article in Harvard Business Review come this summer. Thank you. The information contained here reflects the views of Alliance Bernstein LP or its affiliates and sources it believes are reliable as of the date of this podcast. Alliance Bernstein LP makes no representations or warranties concerning the accuracy of any data. There is no guarantee that any projection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views expressed here may change at any time after the date of this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Alliance Bernstein LP does not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. It does not take an investor's personal investment objectives or financial situation into account. Investors should discuss their individual circumstances with appropriate professionals before making any decisions. This information should not be construed as sales or marketing material or an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any financial instrument, product, or service sponsored by Alliance Bernstein or its affiliates. 
The AB logo is a registered service mark of Alliance Bernstein, and Alliance Bernstein is a registered service mark used by permission of the owner, Alliance Bernstein LP, 2018 Alliance Bernstein LP.